Whereas Jesus may have literally flipped the tables in the Gospels, James here flips the spiritual tables of our lives, and he hits us where it hurts the most, our pocketbooks. This week, we get into what James has to say about being rich and poor, and who is elevated. The bottom line, the riches of this life pass away, but the poor can exalt in their elevation. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way. I'm Father Dustin, your host. As you know, we've been looking at the letter of James, and James really packs it in, so we haven't gotten very far. So far, we've gotten through verse 8. And as you know, in the very first verses, James talks about having trials, and how those trials should produce endurance, and how that endurance eventually leads us to maturity. Now, that right there is a good summary of the way, how we as Christians should mature from infants or baby Christians all the way up to fully grown functioning adults. And that's what we're called to do. We are called to sit in our faith and not grow. We're called to grow, become mature, endure these trials. And hopefully we can turn around then and teach others to endure their trials, so that we can produce a church, an assembly full of mature Christians. And that's what it means to walk the way. And James packs that in, in the very first few verses. And then we also looked at what James means by wisdom. And we looked at the idea of wisdom as following the law. So God presents his people with the law, which we know as the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, And there, God's commandments, if you will, or God's teaching is presented in a legal form among stories. Even the entire thing is the law, even the stories, is presenting God's teaching. But then we saw how later in the Old Testament, God presents that same instruction, that same teaching as wisdom, which is how the Greeks thought of life. They thought of wisdom, but now this is God's wisdom. And of course, in the New Testament, we get Jesus. And Jesus' teaching, not only the teaching that comes out of his mouth, the parables and commandments, but also the instruction that's given by his life, right? We see him go to the cross. He teaches us how we should be as Christians, what it means to really love our neighbor. So now we're ready for verse 9. And as I said in previous podcasts, James is often uncomfortable for us. We don't like it. And here's where it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable, precisely because most of us, if you're like me, you're an American. And as Americans, we live better than most of the world. In fact, we live better than most people throughout all of humanity. Even if we aren't rich, per se, we still live better than some of the kings of old. Think about it. We have heat and air conditioning, clean running water, electricity, all these sorts of things that most of us as Americans have access to. And so we are rich compared to the rest of humanity throughout time. And now James is going to challenge us 
on this. And this is where it starts to get uncomfortable because James won't give us a pass. So here's what he says. And let the lowly brother exalt in his elevation, but the rich man in his abasement, because he will pass away like flower in the grass. Now remember, here it says brother, but the term brother, remember, in ancient Greek is a grammatical construction. And so here, it may be in the masculine case, but brother refers to the entirety of humanity. So let the lowly brothers and sisters exalt in their elevation, is what we can think of, would be another way of translating that. And what is this elevation? I think the best example is that one shown by Christ. Here is a man who had no earthly riches that we know of. In fact, we know he taught that he didn't even have a place to lay his head, so he had no home. And in the end, how does he die? He dies naked as a criminal outside the city walls. And if there's any elevation in that story, it's him being elevated up on a cross, a painful, tragic way to die. And all of his friends abandon him. In fact, one of his friends was the one who betrayed him and handed him over to the authorities. Yet in that elevation, we see Christ enthroned as king. That's what we see there. And we know after the resurrection, Christ is exalted or lifted up when he ascends into heaven. And so it's that idea that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And here James is pointing that out, that the lowly shall exalt in their elevation. And it's not them who lift themselves up, but it's God who lifts them up. It's God who exalts them. But James goes on to say, and this is verse 10, But the rich man in his abasement, because he will pass away like flower in the grass. Of course, the flower in the grass is a quote that comes from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. And it's the idea that the things that man makes, or the things that humanity makes in this world, will perish. They don't last. It's like the Tower of Babel. We can try to build up to heaven and reach heaven, but God will always wipe it away. It won't last. Even if we build it out of stone, it won't last. That's the irony of the temple. They built a temple out of stone, but God wipes that away. He wipes it away using the Babylonians. He wipes it away using the Romans. And if they were to build another temple, he would wipe it away again. That's the point, that what we do, what we make, won't last. And that includes riches, money, material things, big houses, fancy cars. All of that will pass away. But spiritual things will not pass away. And that's what James is going to be getting at. Now, I would also like to put all of this into context, the context of the first century. And I think the best place to understand some of this, and some of the tension between the poor and the rich in the first century, can be found in the work of John Dominic Crossan. And I've had the chance to hear him speak in person. He's Irish by birth, but taught scripture here in America. And he wrote a book called Jesus and Empire, The Kingdom of God and the New World Disorder. And I think that's a good book to start with, although he does have other books you may want to start with as well. 
What's great about John Dominic Crossan is that he is not only a scholar of scripture, but a historian of the first century. And he's one of those guys that completely understands the politics and the economics of everything happening. And so when he's looking at scripture, he's able to contextualize it in a way that most of us can't, because we just aren't familiar with that time period. In that book, uh, and this is the chapter on Roman imperialism, here's what uh, Crossan writes, quote, The Romans determined the conditions of life in Galilee, where Jesus lived and carried out his mission. In the decades before Jesus was born, Roman armies marched through the area, burning villages, enslaving able-bodied, and killing the infirm. Roman warlords appointed the young military strongman Herod as king and provided him with the troops to conquer his subjects. End quote. That right there is a perfect summary of the conditions that most people lived under, especially the people in Galilee. John Dominic Crossan goes on to talk about the difference between living in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, or living in Galilee, which is up north. So if you're in Judea, especially around Jerusalem, he says that your life revolved around the temple. So Herod, who was installed by these Romans as King Herod, we all know that, went on a building project. Herod, probably more than any other person in history, has left a mark on modern-day Israel through his building program. Now remember, these things don't last, and so what you see today is just the remnants of what was there. But at the time, he built a palace at Masada, and we've all heard of Masada. He rebuilt the temple and expanded it. It became this huge complex. He also built several cities. Of course, this building project was good for the people who lived in and around Jerusalem because it gave them work. Because building things like this required craftsmen, stonemasons, carpenters, all sorts of professionals who could work and build this temple. And then once it was complete, it became the center of Judean religious life. They had three big festivals where people were required to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the feasts there in Jerusalem. And so you had all these people constantly coming to Jerusalem for these big feasts. And of course, this requires a hospitality system. So you had people working at the temple to receive these people, to do the sacrifices, sell them goods. But then you also had people selling food, people providing housing. It's the entire hospitality industry. And so if you were in Jerusalem or part of Judea, your life may not have been too bad because you constantly had this income coming in or work was available. But if you lived up in Galilee, it's a completely different story. The temple wasn't located there. You didn't get to benefit from having the temple. You were the one who had to travel in order to celebrate the feasts. One thing that King Herod did was he used Galilee as a way of raising money for his building projects. And so if you were in Galilee, you were subject to all sorts of taxes. It was a form of oppression. And so it wasn't very comfortable being a Galilean under Herod because he exploited you. That's exactly what it was. It was exploitation. Let's hear Crossan's description of what life would have been like living under the Romans and under King Herod. He says, quote, In Palestine, 
The brutality started soon after the initial Roman conquest in 63 BCE, or BC, and continued literally for two centuries. Two dramatic acts of gratuitous vengeance by Roman warlords must have left a collective trauma in Galilee that directly affected the Jesus movement. Eager to reassert Roman power in Palestine after the civil war between rival factions of the puppet Hasmonean dynasty had erupted, Cassius enslaved 30,000 people in and around Terechia, that is Magdala, on the Sea of Galilee in 53 through 52 about 50 years prior to the time of Mary Magdalene, who, judging from her name, must have been raised there. Then, in 4 BCE, in vengeful retaliation against rebellion, Varius's troops burned the town of Sepphoris and the surrounding villages and enslaved inhabitants. This destruction and mass enslavement would have affected people in every village in the immediate area of Sepphoris, such as Nazareth, only a few miles away. Similarly, in the Judean hill country, Varius totally destroyed the village of Emmaus, familiar from one of the stories of Jesus' resurrection. The Roman killing or enslavement of tens of thousands of Galileans and Judeans around the time of Jesus was born must have left mass trauma among the people in its wake. The scope of slaughter and enslavement in 4 BCE pales, however, in comparison with the massacre and destruction of village after village and the mass enslavement by Roman troops in their search and destroy and scorched earth practices in retaliation against the Great Revolt of 66 through 70. And this is described by Josephus. The numerous examples of mass Roman massacres and annihilations of whole peoples in retaliation for revolts and even minor breaches of treaty provide numerous parallels that make Josephus's horrifying accounts of the brutal Roman treatment of Galileans and Judeans entirely credible. So this paints a very ugly picture of what life under Roman rule was like. We don't know exactly when the letter of James was written. Perhaps it was at the time of the destruction of the Roman temple in 70 AD. But we saw that the Romans were not kind to the Judeans or the Galileans. After they revolted, the Romans put their foot down and slaughtered entire villages, burnt down people's farms and crops, which would be their livelihoods, and enslaved a large portion of the population. This was not pretty. And so you can understand why the poor would have this resentment against the rich. You can now understand why Christ would talk about the poor in such an uplifting way. Why the kingdom of God would seem so inviting, especially to the people who have been brutalized under the Romans and by Herod. This was a hope of a new world set right by God. And it starts with the crucifixion. There's a prayer that most of us know. It's the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father. And we probably all know it in the King James Version. That's the most popular, and I'm sure all of you have it memorized. If you don't, that's your homework. Go memorize the Lord's Prayer. That's just one prayer you have to know. And there's a line in it that says, Ton arton imon ton ipiusio dos imin simron, which means, give us this day our daily bread. And David Bentley Hart wrote an article called A Prayer for the Poor, and it's in the Church Life Journal on Notre Dame's website. If you want to go find it, you can. And he argues that give us this day our daily bread means that we're praying for bread adequate for the day's needs. 
In other words, it was a prayer of people who didn't have food to eat. They wondered where their next meal would come from, and so they're praying to God for their meal. Most commentaries, when they're talking about this prayer, and it gets to give us this day our daily bread, will spiritualize it. In fact, in Greek, ton arton imon ton ipiusion, the ipiusion, which is usually translated as daily, really doesn't mean daily. What it means is supernatural. Give us this day our supernatural bread. But David Bentley Hart makes the argument that in context of the first century, it is probably best understood as literal bread, bread, food to eat. Within the Ephesus school, you also hear that this bread could be the teaching. And we know this is also true in Scripture when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then the 4,000. What Jesus is talking about there is teaching. He's asking his disciples to feed the people with the bread of the teaching. But Hart here says some people in the first century, those suffering under Roman rule, would have heard it as, give us bread because we are hungry. But then the prayer continues. That's the, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, the trespasses here could also mean debts. So forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us. You have to remember, Jesus was speaking to a people who were heavily taxed and oppressed by the Romans and Herod so that they could live their luxurious lives and go about their extravagant building projects. And so they were often indebted. And Jesus is trying to turn the tables here, saying, pray to God that your debts are released. But remember, you should not have people indebted to you. Forgive them their debts. So you can see the economic underpinning or the economic understanding of the Lord's Prayer when you put it back in its context and how some people may have heard this. So David Bentley Hart in the article ends up translating the last part of the Lord's Prayer in this way. Give us our bread today in a quantity sufficient for the whole of the day and grant us relief from our debts to the very degree that we grant relief to those who indebted to us. And then the last part of the Lord's Prayer is, And that pirosmon is the word for temptations. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And as we saw from a few verses earlier in James, that temptation could also mean trial. And yes, we should be thinking about a court trial. And remember, our Lord said in one of the parables that if someone is taking you to court, you should settle before you get there, or it may not end well for you. And it's very possible that people were being dragged into courts because they couldn't pay their taxes. Courts were being used as a weapon against the poor, as a way of oppressing them even more and extracting even more money from them, money that they probably really didn't have. The poor usually got their money from their crops. And if they had to sell their crops to pay the taxes, it often meant they didn't have food to put on the table for their families. And so David Bentley Hart translates that section as, And do not bring us to the court for trial, but rather you rescue us from the wicked man. From the wicked man. And we know that courts and trials are usually rigged against the poor, because those who run the courts 
and those who make the decisions are often of a different class. And so the system is often rigged. And we see these sorts of things in the world today. And so James is encouraging the poor right here, and it makes the rich uncomfortable, and it should make us uncomfortable. So here's verse 9 again. And let the lowly brother exalt in his elevation, but the rich man in his abasement, because he will pass away like a flower in the grass. For the sun rose with a scorching heat and withered the grass, and its flower fell away, and the loveliness of its face perished. Thus also will the rich man fade away amid his undertakings. So we'll end there with that, with the idea again that what we do in this life and the riches we gather are meaningless compared to the spiritual riches we are called to have. So we'll pick up with verse 12 next week. God bless. <laughs>